everybody. Welcome back to the Strong Nouns Podcast. Before we get started on the show today, I want to draw your attention to something. Leah Sham with the Vision Zero Network is here. And I asked her to come on and chat just a little bit before the show starts about some opportunities now to jumpstart your local Vision Zero program. So Leah, welcome real quick to the Strong Nouns Podcast. It's nice to see you. Great to be here. Thanks. So I've been rather critical of this infrastructure bill, but I've had good friends and good people say, Chuck, there's some good stuff in here. And it seems like maybe there's an opportunity here in this one part uh, for us to do a lot of good. Can you, first of all, just talk a little bit about the program that is now accessible to people uh, from the federal government? Yeah, it's a really exciting first-time program. It's called Safe Streets and Roads for All. It is focused specifically on not only safety, but with a real priority on walking, biking, transit riders, scooter riders. It's focused on lowering speeds. It's focused on complete streets. It's like all the stuff I think the Strong Towns community is going to love. And another exciting piece is that the funding goes directly to locals or regions or tribal agencies. So it doesn't have to go through that big kind of morass of state agencies and frankly, get watered down. It can go right to your local community, whether you're small, medium, large, rural, suburban, urban, anybody can apply for this and it's a lot of money. So I'm a city, I've been interested in Vision Zero for a long time, but I've I've had trouble getting momentum. I've had trouble figuring out, is this gonna be money for planning? Is this money for what, what kind of work can I do with these funds? It can be almost anything that really fits in that important safety lens. So uh, 40% of the funds are for planning. So that's a lot. So it would enable a community to go out and do a Vision Zero action plan, to do a speed management plan, to, to um, kind of look out and say, okay, what's an equity, racial equity framework for our safety work? So that's all planning. And then 60% is for implementation. So what we're really encouraging is, hey, don't just go out there and do a spot. Do an entire citywide program, lower your speed limits, redesign your streets, you know, really think about a, a systemic safety program that, that is much bigger than you've tried in the past because it's a lot of funds. Okay, but this is the federal government. Obviously, I've got to either know somebody or have my congressman on board or I'm going to have to fill out 50 pages of application forms. Tell me, t- tell me, tell me it's not going to be like that. I hope it's not going to be like that. I'll say I've been really impressed. There's been a real emphasis on kind of streamlining and simplifying this. So I'd recommend, I'm going to read a website out here so people can check it out and see for themselves. But I'll just mention that they really are encouraging um, everybody to apply. Even if you're a small community, really small town, one idea is, and they're encouraging this, one idea is to bundle up or, or, or come together with several small towns in your region or your state, and you can bundle a grant proposal. So maybe it's you know a, a bigger county with five smaller communities in it. So there's a lot of creative ways, I think, to do this. Um, I also want to encourage it it's not, they really get, it's not just about transportation. Maybe you want to bring some public health folks in to help with some of the work. Uh, Maybe it's funding some community engagement, but really helping empower and and pay for um, community, you know, engagement there. So I think they're thinking big on this. And the website there is the word transportation.gov, G-O-V slash SS4A. Imagine that safe streets for all. So transportation.gov backslash SS4A. And this is something people need to move on to, right? I mean, this isn't, I know this has just been released, but we're not going to be talking about this six months from now, right? That's right. They're moving pretty quickly. The deadline for applications is September 15th. 
So I'd suggest people go there now. This this process is open right now. And I'll say, I think, you know, they're also looking to help people They're They know that, again, not everybody has a huge grant writing experience. So I think Department of Transportation is going to put out some kind of resources for grant writing and helping. And I'll just say this, there's a lot of folks right now at the Department of Transportation in high, high leadership positions who are former mayors, who are former heads of local transportation departments, and who really get it. They understand that bringing more money like this to the local level or regional or tribe level really means more control for people on the ground, which is where we need it. So, you know, this helps you not have to kind of, again, go through that huge state kind of bureaucracy and they want to get things done quickly, including, I'll just mention, um, pilots are, are eligible here. So maybe, you know, maybe you've got some skeptical people in your community that aren't sure about traffic calming measures. They aren't sure about a traffic circle. They aren't sure about lowering speeds. They aren't sure about redesigning a a main street, et cetera, or anything. You could, you could fund a trial. So, Hey, let's see how this works for a couple of weeks or months, learn from it and then implement it even better. Lee, you, you and I have talked about doing a longer podcast. I feel bad we're, we're cramming you in here at the beginning of the show. <laughs> you and I are going to sit down at some point and have a longer conversation because uh, there's a lot to, to, to delve into here. But I, if people want to learn more about Vision Zero, uh, learn more about the Vision Zero network, uh, get inspired on what they can do to make their streets safer and, and more productive, uh, what's your website? Where should they go? Yeah, ours is Vision Zero Network. Org, and that's spelled out Z-E-R-O and lots of resources there, ways to, to kind of help encourage you to apply for funding, ways to learn from other communities. And we'd love to welcome people there. And I would love to come back on another podcast. Let's make it happen. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. On with the show. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I've been blessed and, and fortunate to meet so many interesting people in my many years of doing this thing that has evolved into, uh, into Strong Towns. And, and one of the more interesting guys that I've met is Mike McGinn. Mike McGinn contacted us years ago, I think. I, I don't know. I wound up chatting with him and, and uh, I'm like, who is this guy who's the mayor of Seattle who wants to chat with me? Like, this is bizarre. Gosh, I love this guy. And we've gotten to be very good friends. We've uh, helped each other out. I, I think the help has gone more my way than me helping him. But Mike has taken a position in the last year at an organization called America Walks, an organization that I'm familiar with and, and have admired and, and find a lot uh, in common with. Mike's, as you would expect, kind of re-energized the group. And I said, it's time we catch up, time we chat. So Mike McGinn, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. And I think I had you on my podcast when back when I had one. So I remember so you have you have inspired me, Chuck. So don't don't suggest you haven't don't suggest you haven't contributed much to this relationship. Well, I and appreciate continue, that and continue to inspire me, frankly. Thank you. We, we have certainly uh, had a, a long and winding road together now. And, you know, the thing for me that I, I appreciate the most is when you came to Tulsa and sat down with uh, Jamie Durrell. And we had what I, what I think is 
one of the seminal conversations of this movement, which was, and, and please tell me if I'm mischaracterizing you, but a progressive left of center mayor from a progressive left of center blue state, you know, blue city, sitting down with a conservative right of center mayor from a conservative right of center city in a, in a very conservative state of Louisiana, talking strong towns and talking transportation and walking and transit and, and finding not only areas to, dis, to, to agree, but, but vastly more agreement than disagreement. And I thought it was just a beautiful statement of where we could, where we could go in America if we got past this uh, you know, <laughs> partisan polarization we have. So please, am I mischaracterizing that? I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> you know, I, I found that this was very frequently true. And, and I think mayors occupy a really unique space in the political system. Like we're really close to the people in a way that other elected officials are not. Like your member of Congress, you know, they get elected every two years. They're certainly in touch. But in terms of like, having access to levers that really affect people's day-to-day lives. They're seen as distant. Even city council members may be close, but people know who their mayor is usually. And when you look at the things that mayors have under them, and there are different kinds of mayors, by the way. There, there are mayors who are chief executives like I was. There are mayors who are um, you know, basically chairman of the board of their city council and the city manager is the real chief exec. But in either case, the mayor is the one closest to the public and we're looking at, you know, roads, um, libraries, your garbage has to be taken away, the police department, the fire department, the parks, the, you know, maybe you've got some human services. Uh, If you're a bigger city, you definitely do. The zoning code, the number of things that people see and deal with every day and can hold their mayor accountable for means that mayors of whatever stripe, when they meet, they got some common ground to talk about because everybody's got to make sure that, that, that if the garbage is supposed to get taken on Wednesday, that the garbage goes on Wednesday. Because if it doesn't, they're going to hear about it. It may, just makes for a different relationship. But I also think, I mean, where you're going too as well, is it drives people, it drives mayors to understand some real fundamentals about what does it take to have a thriving place. And that can hopefully transcend, you know, conservative or liberal ideology to just get down to, you know, really ba- how do things work? Right, right. What does it take to run a city? It's been a while since I've had you on the podcast. Our downloads are through the roof. So there's a lot of new people listening, maybe for the benefit of, of those. And my apologies to people who have been here a long time and, and know Mike. I think this is the third time you've been on, third or fourth time. Let's give a little brief history of going from Sierra Club activist with this crazy idea that, well, maybe I should run for mayor <laughs> to all of a sudden being in the mayor's office and uh, let, maybe maybe just do that transition and then sure. we'll talk about America Walks. Sure. And I, uh, you know, I can do the 30 minute version. So let me see if I can pull up the three minute version, <laughs> which is, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid that grew up on the East Coast and, you know, was fortunate a few years into my you know, a year or two after college, I got to work for a congressman from Oregon, of all places. And I moved out to the Pacific Northwest and it really loved it. Ended up in Seattle for law school, graduated. And I went to law school because I wanted to do, you know, public interest law. But like lots of people who go to law school, I ended up in a small firm downtown doing commercial litigation. And I started volunteering for the Sierra Club. 
um, because I, I needed something to kind of fill, fill that part of me. And, you know, I'd started off caring about traditional Sierra Club topics, you know, wilderness and clean rivers and clean air and water. At some point, I moved to a neighborhood without sidewalks. And I was like, well, what do we have to do to get sidewalks in the neighborhood? So I, I decided to join the local community council. I was nominated to be president of the community council after attending a few many meetings. And I, I took vice president. I thought that was perfect. I'd have a title. <laughs> but no responsibility, right? You could attend funerals. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then four months later, the president, uh, Joan, Joan James, who I still know, a wonderful person, um, you know, she left. And uh, um, now I was president. So I ended up being like chapter chair of the local Sierra Club, head of my local community council. And we started working on sidewalks and uh, local development. And through the Sierra Club, we were working on local elections. We were working on ballot measures. And by that time, I was actually very highly motivated about climate change. Like now I was like, this is the issue. Like it's not about, you know, preserving the wild places and it was affecting everything. And I also made the connection between why building your community better was so important, right? Like being able to walk to destinations locally, having lots of destinations. And it put me a little bit at odds with some other members of my neighborhood who, you know, we need more parking, stop the apartment building, right? And, you know, those types of things. And that bike lane, I hate the bike lane. And, and literally on the sidewalk end, then I had people who were opposing some sidewalks that would connect the business district to the park and the Boys and Girls Club because it would make it too hard to drive. So like I was literally organizing in my neighborhood around those issues. One thing led to another and I quit my job as a lawyer and founded a nonprofit that tried to bring all of these place-based issues into one place and, and not merely from an environmental lens, but from an economic vitality and health and uh, social equity lenses as well. And, you know, trying to show that there was public demand for better places. We called it Great City. This was in the early 2000s. Can I I pause and point out something here? Because I I think, you know, I I know you mentioned that this is going on in Seattle, but I just want to emphasize that point because I think a lot of times people from around the country, you know, people in Lincoln, Nebraska and people in uh, Oklahoma City, they think that in Seattle, this is easy because everybody agrees, <laughs> you know, and, and and I think what you're illuminating is that this is not easy anywhere. Like we're all we're all working on this. Right. No, I think that's right. And so the neighborhood I lived in is Greenwood and it was literally the old city line and the city had expanded. So there weren't sidewalks north of the city line. And it was also if you look at cities and some of your listeners, I'm sure know this. You can really tell where the streetcar suburbs end, right? You usually have a neighborhood business district that was built around the streetcar stop. It meant that people could live further from the center than before. And then streetcars were replaced basically by automobile-centric design. We were right on the line between the two. So my neighborhood of Greenwood, I yes, we're in Seattle, and that means our demographics are a little bit differently. But in terms of the physical difficulties A neighborhood business district isn't too far apart from a small suburban center or even a small town in terms of like the dynamics of how a place works. We're connected by bus lines to major employers downtown. But in terms of like how the place can work and who's living there and what they care about. Yeah, no, there's a lot of similarities, I think, 
I think we make a mistake when we get into the red state, blue state dichotomy. I think, I think it's much more a people sort themselves out, they say, or people have different issues. But if you're in a smaller town with a street grid and a downtown business district, you're probably going to share the same concerns about how your neighborhood looks if you live in a suburb of a big city that's, you know, a bus ride from downtown. So there's a lot of similarities, I think, between the issues people face and and how they think about them, too. Yeah. So at what point did you decide, boy, the calling that I have here to help make this neighborhood more walkable and, and a better place to live is best handled in the the mayor's office. I mean, what, what kind of <laughs> what, what kind of loony uh, thought <laughs> drove you to that extreme? <laughs> wow. Well, you know, and this is kind of what led me to form that nonprofit in Seattle. Was I was told repeatedly, "Well, you can't have sidewalks, Mike. We don't have money for sidewalks." And I would just say, "What do you mean we don't have money for sidewalks? I see tons of transportation money. This would be really valuable." Right. In addition, our neighborhood business district had a number of apartment buildings around it. You know, there, we have two bus lines to downtown on either side, running parallel routes either side of the neighborhood. And but there was no money. And I, then I was further informed, look, we don't have any money in the city to even take care of our residential streets. We don't have enough money to take care of arterial streets. We don't have enough money to build sidewalks on our arterial streets. So I was like, you know, being. Um, you know, the way I am, I'm like, okay, well, let's go get some money then. Like, what does it take to get money? And so that led me into kind of citywide politics on, you know, transportation funding. And then you discover, well, there is money doesn't have money (laughs) because the state laws about how the state doles out its money, including federal money, how the state doles out the gas tax money it raises it's all going to highways, not all, but a hell of a lot. And it's not even going to maintenance of existing state highways. It's going to building new ones or widening existing ones. And and the city was starved of funding sources. So I was involved in various attempts to get more funding sources for local uh, things. And I worked on uh, a local uh, property tax measure that also included a parking tax and some other revenue to fund local infrastructure, still not enough. So that's, that's what did it. And now I'm, I'm also seeing, I mentioned climate before, which was motivating me. It's like Seattle had electric, its electricity was generated from hydropower plants. So we didn't, and we'd gotten off of coal. We'd been buying some coal power. We'd sold it. We'd sold out of that, got out of those contracts. So our biggest source of carbon emissions were from the transportation sector. So I got every Democratic politician in the state saying this is a problem. But nobody seems to have any money for people walking, biking, or using the bus. And by the way, this this continues today. So I was now running a nonprofit that was really focused on city of Seattle politics, building coalitions, lots of people involved. We passed a, a parks measure on the ballot. We helped get a complete streets policy. And the mayor's race is coming around. And, and I was disappointed in the incumbent and was looking around for who was going to run against him that, that had my values. And nobody was running against him because he thought he was unbeatable. And it, it turned out I had my values and I had some experience in politics. And I was like, I could win this race. So I got in and I, I gave up my nonprofit in a way, but I thought, wow, mayor, I could do so much more there. So that's, that's what did it. And we won, got way outspent, but I had a great volunteer base and we won. Yeah. 
this intersects with the uh, the big tunnel that was going in at the time. You know, as you juxtapose the idea that transportation spending on expansion squeezes out not only you know building new sidewalks and making neighborhoods walkable, but but just maintaining and fixing basic things that people and Everything. expect government to do. You add that in high fidelity because you in your city was actually undertaking one of the most insane transportation projects, you know, I, I think of the last decade. Tell me if that's a mischaracterization, but it, it you went in and took an elevated highway and at, at billions of dollars buried it underground in uh, one of the craziest projects that I've seen. Well, I'm, I was in the middle of it, so I am sure I don't have perspective enough to decide whether it was the craziest, but it sure was crazy. So as background for, for the listeners, we had an elevated you know, concrete highway, double-decker highway on our waterfront, looked a lot like the Embarcadero, looked a lot like the West Side Highway in New York, which are, are gone now, but it was really the first generation of highways. And it didn't really connect on either, it connected to surface streets on either end. They, they had plans to connect it to I-5 and the freeway network, but the freeway revolted to 70, stopped that. And so it's at the end of its useful life. It had gotten a shake from an earthquake that didn't knock it down, but let everybody know that it needed to be gone. It was going to collapse like, like the Oakland one that had collapsed. And uh, so there were two options that were put on the table. Do we have a new elevated highway, which if you built it to modern standards would be like twice as wide, or do you get a tunnel? And um, I worked with others to say, why don't we do what New York did, get rid of uh, San Francisco did, other cities are are looking at doing. Let's just take it down. Let's build transit to feed those needs. And uh, let's have a beautiful waterfront. There was actually a public vote on the elevated and the tunnel before I ran for mayor. And it was both lost. Each of them were a separate up or down vote, both lost. And I was part of, I think we called it the no and hell no campaign. <laughs> and uh, I was part of that campaign through through Sierra Club and my other work. And there was actually, this is an, a part of the story that nobody, a lot of people don't appreciate. It was a stakeholder group that was set up that had uh, professional advice, stakeholder input, and the head of the county, city, and state DOTs. And they all concluded that our alternative would work. You could meet the needs with these, with with transit and the local street network. The big businesses who really wanted it, whether it was the port, Boeing had facilities north and south of the city, Microsoft is in the suburbs. They all believed that, that we just need highways to serve us. They went down to the governor. The governor came and said, well, we'll do a new kind of tunnel, a deep bore tunnel. It'll be less expensive than the other tunnels. And it'll work. And uh, this all happened as I was contemplating a run for mayor. So I actually made opposition to the tunnel a, a, a part of my campaign. And it was a big part of the reason I won. There was both a, a progressive element that wanted a better that wanted transit. And there were also a more anti-tax conservative element that was like, this is a big waste of money to build a tunnel. To complete the story, I, I could not. I could not win. The tunnel was determined to be built. They they bought themselves their tunnel boring machine, the biggest one ever. And despite all promises that there would be no cost overruns and no glitches, uh, the thing actually got stuck underground. 
They had to dig it. They had to dig a big hole because it can't back up. It builds the tunnel behind it. Can't back up. Right. They had to dig it out of the ground, which is just them. seems, you know, completely logical. Like, let's make this billion dollar bet that we can't back out of. It's kind of a metaphor for the whole thing. Right. It really is. And yeah. then they, they stuck it back in and it finally finished. It took many years I think today, because it's told, because it doesn't have many exits downtown, because that would have been even more expensive, it's serving like 50,000 cars a day, which is, which is like the size of an, a major arterial. Like we spent $4 billion or so on nothing. And we could have been building transit with that money or sidewalks or who knows, maybe even affordable housing in one of the hottest housing markets in the city, things that would have actually really helped people. But that was the power of the Highway Building Coalition. We're both struggling with that Highway Building Coalition in our work. And I, I think, you know, the thing about America Walks now today is that I see you approaching it from a fresh perspective and energized perspective around people walking and, and really starting there with, uh, you know, getting, I was going to say getting your feet on the ground, but uh, metaphorically and physically in, in real life. Can we, can we talk a little bit about your transition to America walks? Wh what is it that you, what is it about this position? First of all, that, that made it enticing for you to take it. And then can we talk a little bit about some of the things that have gone on in the last, I mean, has it been 13 months you've been there? 14 months? I want to say it was like I last month. I'm like the 18 now or okay. 20. Okay. So we're starting to get, we're getting a little bit of time under your belt. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw this job application and I reviewed, you know, the job announcement and reviewed the criteria and looked at the organization, what I really loved about it was that its mission was to support local advocates. Like that was its primary mission. It's also a mission to be a voice for walkability. And we should really define walkability more broadly. We use that phrase. It's really about anybody moving around, whether in a wheelchair, mobility assistance device. It's walkability to me is a metaphor. And we try to say walk and roll as much as possible. It's really not a metaphor. It's, 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 it's not based on that we have sidewalks and crosswalks. I think it's based on the concept that there's places where you have things nearby and you can have the freedom to move about and the high quality of life that, that all of that carries with it, you know, the clean air, the community. It's really about people and, and the, the, the dignity of people to, to live in a good place. And this is just an entry point for that. And it really appealed to me that we were supporting local advocates who did this work because I was one of them, right? And so that really appealed to me. And uh, I think that we have a strong foundation um, of an organization, which was great. We already had something we called our walking college, which we, which we did more intensive training for local advocates. So not just the policy, but also the processes and how to organize. And that was something that I did a lot of, right? I worked right, a lot right, of right. campaigns yeah. over the years and did a lot of organizing and kind of learned it by osmosis from other organizers. We've now partnered with AARP, has a wonderful livable communities uh, program. And we're doing state walking colleges in six states, training AARP volunteers how to organize and do work. We have one in Arkansas, you know, through Arkansas Department of Health. 
And so I really want to expand that, how much we can really support people on the ground doing the work. But we're also, I would say, since arriving, I work to try to bring us more into that national voice, speaking from the knowledge of what local advocates want. And so we got involved in reforming the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices. It was up for federal rulemaking. And, you know, we called it the most important pedestrian safety document you never heard of. And Chuck knows what it is. Transportation engineers know what it is. And people who've tried to get crosswalks know what it is because an engineer says the manual says you can't have it. So that's another place I've tried to move us. And, And going to the freeway issues and the highways, you know, we've seen in the past year or two, just a much deeper understanding of the role, the way in which highways break up cities and separate people from each other. Your work highlighting what happens in Shreveport and the work Strong Towns has done. Congress of New Urbanism has always uh, had their Highways to Boulevards program. They were supportive of the work we were trying to do in Seattle, but it's become much more salient now. And people are starting to understand the trade-offs, not just with the dollars and the opportunity cost of the dollars, but what it means to how it tears apart a community and how it needs to be knit together again. And now it makes sense on so many different levels for cities to do that. I'm, I'm getting out a little bit ahead of ourselves. We are now, we, we've expanded our staff. And as part of that work, we are now a co-host of the Freeway Fighters Network at America Walks. And so that's really exciting because there, there are organizations all around the country that are fighting this, like 35 to 50 organizations locally around the country. So um, I, I don't know. I love campaigns, Chuck. I want to talk about the role of the local advocate. I also want to talk about the federal role and the highway thing and, and the interplay between the two. So let, let's start with that one first. You just had a recent announcement that about the, the Freeway Fighters Network. And I'd like to give you a chance to, to talk about that. What is it? Why is it so important for walking that we actually address the highway issue? Because I, I, th- there's, a, there's an article, and by the time this podcast comes out, I will have written, my response to it will have been up. There's an article in Reason Magazine recently that attacked me as being anti-highway. Uh, it included people like you who, you know, there's this coalition of, uh, of hippie liberals out there who don't like freedom and are trying to take away your right to drive. And, you know, I found it incoherent. What is the Freeway Fighters Network and how does that relate to your core mission? Why, why is that important to America Walk? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, it was, it was, I just want to circle back to the comment you were making about me and the, the mayor from Louisiana and talking about what makes a city. And I think, it's, I think it's really important to take a second to focus on what makes a city. A city is a place where a lot of different things happen right? Like so many different things happen in a city. And there's so many different, and historically, you know, cities always had a reason to exist. Like they served, either they served some specialized functions for their region, or in the national economy, they, they, they did something great, you know, they made something, you know, Seattle has Boeing and, and Microsoft, and, and, you know, we may, you know, there, there's reasons to exist for cities. And, those big companies always started off as little companies. Boeing was a little red barn, right? Cities are places where you have this economic activity. You have cultures mixing, 
people come to cities, you know, and so the, the cultural mixing is huge. The idea that people are getting ideas from each other and sharing ideas. So it's a place that's really built around that type of connectivity between ideas and peoples and commerce that really makes cities run. And in the middle of all of this complexity, right, and people connecting through a variety of different modes, whether walking or transit or biking or vehicles, whatever, we introduce a single-use facility that's really big called the freeway, and it just breaks up all the connections, right? Like it's a barrier and it's not just a physical barrier. I mean, you can have roadways over, but people don't like to walk over noisy, polluting things. Like look at where you take a walk. Like if I have a choice between walking into the quiet part from my house or walking towards the freeway, which isn't far from me, I don't, I don't walk towards the freeway and I don't want to walk along it. That's the, that's the problem with these busy roads too. Even if they have a sidewalk, you just, it's hostile. And you break all that up you take all that land out of the tax base for the city, you lose that land that could have been used for housing or offices or, or you know, some type of economic activity, you know, like manufacturing or manufacturing or the like. And they just, they just don't really belong in cities when you get right down to it. And I'm not even, I don't even have to go to the climate argument, although I will, I would, right? Because it's totally inconsistent with what it means to have that type of connected, vibrant community. And that's where the walkability and disability access and transit come in, too. You know, I'd ask people to look at their own city, where the local streets, because now you're pumping a lot of cars into the city, too, right? You're just mainlining cars into the middle of your downtown street grid, which probably wasn't built to handle that many vehicles, but I'd ask people to consider in their own local town, where are your worst traffic spots? I'll bet you they're at the entrance, they're the roads and the entrances and exits to the freeways because they're choke points to get across the freeway. Plus they attract cars going to or from the freeway. So it just disrupts the, it's hard for people to accept this, but from a traffic perspective, the grid or some other more granular street network, which is super distributed, which supports multiple modes, moves a hell of a lot more people. And it's why IBM and the mainframes went out of business because it turns out distributed networks move more than mainframes. But we're stuck on mainframe architecture and somehow or another believe that's good. So for the reason people who say, why are you against the freedom of driving because you're against highways? You know, my answer is why are you against the freedom of, of cities to be cities? And why are you against that economic activity and that movement? you know, of people. And, and now you're going to burden them. Now let's add in a few more external costs. Go overlay a freeway map with a redlining map of a city. I'll tell you, they built the freeways either through Black neighborhoods or to be a barrier between Black neighborhoods and, and other neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. And then the pollution that falls more heavily on the people who live near it. And then, of course, the climate if what you care about is conserving your resources and using them for the best things possible, an inherently conservative instinct, freeways are not conservative. They are top-down authoritarian social engineering by people who want government tax dollars. I'm going to be blunt here. The reason it still lives is because between the industries that build them and the people that profit from them, 
They're addicted to the billions of dollars that flow to them every year, and they just can't unaddict themselves. And all of us pay the cost to funnel this money to those favored big economic actors, and we pay the cost in a myriad of ways. Let me ask you along those lines. I suspect we may disagree on this, and that's okay, but I want to give you a chance to, to make the case here. We just passed the largest infrastructure spending bill in the nation's history at the federal government level. I, from the very beginning, when it was just a proposal of the administration, pointed out that this was a highway bill with a bunch of other, you know, sweeteners along the way to, to build the, uh, the coalition to get this thing approved. And because of that, I was against it as an organization. We, we don't really take a stand on legislation per se. We're not a lobbying group at all, but we did discuss it to a great degree and, and found very little redeeming about this bill. I think as it went through the, the bipartisan compromise, it became even more highway centric, right? It became even more automobile focused. And it's been difficult for me to have conversations with people who I think are very good people. I mean, I know Mayor Pete, he's a, he's a nice man. I think he's a, he's a genuine and, and honest figure. He obviously works for an administration and has to say certain things. And I, I can respect that, but you know, even some of the people who work for him, who I also know who are very good people are out promoting this bill for a variety of reasons. You know, this is great legislation because it's going to do it's going to give money, more money for walking and biking, more money for uh, transit, more money for building great cities and equity and helping neighborhoods and fighting climate. I don't see it. What was your sense of that bill, either during its development or when it was passed? And, and tell me what I'm missing. Tell me, tell me why I should feel less cynical or, or feel less, optim, you know, less pessimistic about it than I am. Unless you agree, like maybe we should, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a ton of agreement here. I, I think that there's, first of all, it's entirely dependent on how the money's spent. And, you know, 70% of the money is flexible funding that goes to states. And I think there was a recent Georgetown study that I'd meant to read that really gets at that point from a climate perspective, specifically, really depends how it's spent. But if, if the point of your opposition was, if it's federal money, it's bound to be spent the wrong way, you know, or that, or that just the wrong incentives are in place for, for that kind of money from the top, I personally believe there's a lot to that. Like, I know that as, as a mayor, if the federal government just said, here's $100 million, I wouldn't build a highway with it. Right. right. <laughs> I just wouldn't. Yes. Right. As a mayor, there were tons of bridges that needed maintenance and I would maintain them because I'm going to have to raise that money sooner or later to, to maintain that bridge or to repave the streets that that really needs reconstruction, not just potholes patching. So we've created a system where even though it's sent to the state for flexible reasons, at, at many state levels, the emphasis remains very heavily on freeway spending with the flexible funding. The, the, the pots of money for transit, for alternatives is bigger than it's ever been. So, you know, people are saying that that's a good thing. I, I agree that is a good thing, but those pots of money are only 30% of the infrastructure bill. 70% is the flexible funding that goes to states. So the infrastructure bill was a big pile of money, but it also accompanied a reauthorization bill that sets the rules for the next five years. And then so we, every five years we, we do this. And the House bill actually was going to put all sorts of guardrails on the money around safety, around climate. 
But the Senate basically said, well, we're just going to continue the status quo with, with how the money works. Now, some might say that it was an incredible example of how people could put their ideology aside to work together. To me, it's an example of this is how powerful the highway lobby is. They could get they could get Republicans to drop their opposition to anything that would give Biden a win, and they could get Democrats to stop worrying about safety and climate, right? And that's like a to, powerful lobby, right? That's a powerful lobby to continue kind of feeding the beast. Not only did they manage to get that through, they managed to somehow or another cleave off all of the other types of uh, progressive spending programs that the Democrats wanted to pass. So the only thing that emerged, right? So that's a powerful bipartisan lobby. So, you know, there is an ideal world, I suppose, in which localities who are responsible for local streets are given the tools to raise the money they need and, and, and do their work. But we do live in a world where so much of the money comes from the feds. I, I think that people like us at America Walks and the others in this arena have to keep pushing them to reform how they do it. So I'm not, I'm not giving you any reason for optimism, but I do think we need to be in the game to try to, to, try to change this. And, and I do think we need to move more of this type of authority and decision-making to levels where people you know, are demanding sidewalks or are demanding better bus service, and they have the resources to actually meet that demand. Let me ask this question, and I, I don't want to be oblique on this, but I, I, I will, I'll say it this way because I, I think you'll get what I'm after. I have had strain in my relationship with organizations like Smart Growth America and Transportation for America, which, by the way, really deeply admire them and have great colleagues there. And I think we have a lot more in common than we, than we have strain. And I actually think that they've you know, agreed more and more with, with, with our position on this over time. But one of the tension points has always been when we're talking about federal legislation, it doesn't scale to the problem that we have. You and I can sit here today and both think that one of the most urgent, the ur most urgent transportation problem we have in America today is making it so people can safely walk in their communities. I think that is the most urgent transportation issue we have in front of us. It's not traffic congestion. It's not highway expansion. It's not big. It's not transit projects. Even it's making it so people can walk in their neighborhoods safely. If we could do that, so many things would be transformed. The approach that depends on a federal response doesn't scale to the problem. Like it, we, we will never solve the problem that way. Tell me where I'm wrong. Or if I'm not wrong, tell me how we actually make that change. Is it just something where, because I, I hear these people say, well, after the federal government collapses and we, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't like, I'm not wishing for an Armageddon here. Like, I don't want the apocalypse to happen so I can walk. How do we actually get to a, an approach that scales to the size of the problem that we have? Well, you know, I guess that goes back to why I was so excited to join America Walks. Because, and, and I've spoken a lot about the, the power of the political coalition for that spending. So what really matters, what underlies any effort, whether it's better local spending, better state spending, or better federal spending, is that there is substantial public demand for the things that you're just talking about, right? And, and I, 
yeah, places where people can walk and roll, like a, a place that's built for, for someone in a wheelchair to access all their needs is like a tremendous platform for everyone to have a great community. You know, like we talked about, I'm sure you're familiar with the curb cut analogy, right? You build the curb cut and moms with strollers and kids on scooters and, you know, seniors who worried about stepping down, everybody's better, right? And so it's just a tremendous, not just mobility, but economic activity too. So it's, it's building that demand because there's this belief system too, you know, when once you're dependent on vehicles and the other, the other side of this political equation tries to capitalize on this, right? Oh, you're going to take away our freedom to move or, oh, you want to destroy the economy. I had the governor, I had the governor of the state of Washington in my mayor's office telling me because I didn't want a tunnel on the waterfront, I wanted to destroy the economy of Seattle. And did I, and did I want to be responsible for that? It's really powerful. And of course, when there's billions of dollars attached to it, people are going to make those arguments vociferously. So the other side of that has to be to build the political demand and political coalition to create change. Now, we could then argue about what are the best mechanisms to create that change, right? Is it, is it more local authority, more local revenue? I think so. Is it, better, is it better rules at the federal level about how to do things? I think so. People say, well, buses are subsidized, and I've had to kind of go to the argument of, well, they're subsidized because cars are subsidized so much. So I'm not going to back off my subsidy for buses and let the cars have all the subsidies. Meanwhile, of course, if you walk or bike, you're probably delivering money to your city because you're not chewing things up, right? And you're paying your taxes still. And, you know, if I walk somewhere, I'm still paying my property taxes and my sales tax, and I'm not putting any wear and tear on the streets. So I think we could have a lot of discussions about what a better system or a more ideal system looks like. But I think the predicate for all of that is actually having the public demand to win the fights at ultimately at every level of government. And so that's why I think that the work that Strong Towns does in, in reaching out to people and explaining the financial implications of all of this is so valuable. I mean, we'll talk about that too. We may focus more on the safety or the, uh, as I said, the quality of life uh, implications of it as well, the dignity of a human being, the accessibility, climate, you know, people can use whatever argument they want, but we need to build a big enough coalition. And we're starting to see it, by the way, and I'm going to give Strong Town some credit, you know, I'm going to call out one of my favorite mayors now, Mason from Bothell. You know, I met Mason when he was organizing with uh, Carrie, who you've had on your show as well. I met them when they were organizing. This is a suburb that's adopting these, these positions. And their main street is now open to people and is a pedestrian plaza permanently. And this is not a deeply progressive city. It's a bedroom suburb, but they get it. They get what needs to be done. And getting more people going up the ladder of advocacy from, I know this is wrong, so I'm going to say something on social media, to attending a meeting, to joining an organization, to running for office, all of this stuff is going to cumulatively add up. And that's the place. I would love to have an argument with you one day about the best mechanism for delivering the transportation resources to the right places. And we can have a valuable discussion, but I kind of start at, we got to win the fight. We got to win the argument. We got to win, not just win the argument. We got to win the fight. We got to win the fight about uh, on public demand. 
it, it does feel like the uh, the mobilization after World War II around building the interstates and all the accompanying things that went with that was backed by broad public support, right? Like this was a new version. And, and there's been a part of, a, of our work where I've said to local advocates, if you want to not have that strode through the middle of your city, if you want better neighborhoods, if you want more biking and walking, you have to actually build a culture of biking and walking. It, it's not going to work any other way. I feel like a lot of your work and a lot of the work that America Walks does is around building that culture of biking and walking and supporting that that culture. Is that how you would categorize it? And I'd like to get into a little bit of from the the citizen activist point of view. There's a lot of people who are listening right now who are like, I, I want to do a better job promoting biking and walking in my neighborhood. I feel like America Walks is like the resource to help them do that. Talk a little bit about the culture, how you're building that from the bottom up and where people plug in. Well, I love the credit you're giving us, but I, I do want to say, I, I think that you were talking about your differences with Transportation for America. <laughs> I listened to you and Beth. I think your agreements are really substantial. The they are, there. yes. The work they're doing on safety over speed, the work they do on their dangerous by design reports is fabulous. You know, there's the Safe Routes Network, the Vision Zero Network, the League of American Bicyclists, Rail to Trails. We're, we're, and then I'm going to add another, I think, really important one, which is the National Association of City Transportation Officials, NACDEL, which is the, the traffic engineers from cities as opposed to states or, or the like who, and collectively, they're reflecting that culture change. So I really want to affirm what you said, which is I don't think, you know, if it was just a question of having the best ideas, I think we would have won a long time ago, right? Now, right, ideas right. are, right? Yeah. I, I thought climate was like an argument ender. Oh, yeah, life as we know it on the planet will end. So we don't like <laughs> to right. do right? Well, it turns <laughs> out it doesn't win the argument, right? Yeah. So it doesn't win the fight. So... So, yeah, what we have to recognize is that we have the great ideas and ideas are a source of power. And I think that's what Strong Towns is demonstrating as well. Ideas are a source of power, but ideas alone don't get you there. And if it did, you could just explain it to somebody and they change their policy and they don't. So now we enter the fact that there's somebody on the other side making a counter argument. And our job is to build the base and build the demand and long-winded way of saying that that ultimately is about having a conversation about what type of society we are and what matters to us. And that is an argument about our culture, not just an argument about, about policy. And the best messengers for what our community should be like are people who live in communities. They don't want to hear from on high that they're doing it wrong. In fact, I think they're sick of it. I think the public is just sick of hearing it from you know, people smarter than them or who claim they are. Right. Quote, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's what you should do. And, you know, that's something I think anybody who's in the advocacy field always has to watch out for, myself included. I've had personal experience with this. But you really has to be a way of talking about the places we want and how they should work that that people themselves in communities can pick up, carry to their own neighbors and at some point, if we can change the culture, 
we can change the laws, but we can't change the laws and policies if we can't actually do, you know, win that fight at the grassroots level. And that's going to take thousands and thousands of messengers across the country. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about the programs that you guys offer or that you work on? Because I, I do think the walking college is a, is a fascinating concept. I know that we can't do this in every neighborhood in America tomorrow, but can you talk a little bit about the concept and, and, and any other related things that you guys are working on? I'd, I'd like, you know, americawalks.org is the website. I'd like people to be able to go there and, and get access to some of these resources you put in. You've got a great page that has all these walking groups from all over the country. So enter your own state in. You can see there were like eight from Minnesota. I was kind of excited. But go ahead, talk a little bit about the walking college, some of the other programs, and, and really the work that America Walks is doing. Well, and I should start by saying we really want to expand it. So if you are an organization that's working for a more walkable, accessible, you know, kind of inclusive community, let us know. We'll add you to the map. We want people to find you. We're actually going to, we, we redid our website and we're going to try to improve that map so that we can link straight through to you and better than we are and maybe talk a little bit about you. And we're also trying to improve our resources pages. We have several signature programs. One is we do a monthly webinar or almost monthly webinar in which we talk about current issues and, and things that I think, and we try to target it towards, you know, the, the, the types of things we're talking about. I mean, the trade organizations have, have, they have resources to help them learn to be professionals. We want to do things that professionals are interested in, but we want it to be really accessible to your average person who just wants their community to be, to be better. We have the walking college at a national level. You can apply. It's a pretty intensive course. We're looking for somebody who's already been involved and is looking to up their game. And again, it's about the policy ideas. It's about the processes. And it's about how to organize what, uh, where I want to go next. And we're trying to staff up to do this. Is, uh, this is a pretty intensive course. It's multiple weeks, multiple sections, lots of readings. Uh, we connect you with mentors and other activists to, to do your learning, but we want to start developing less time-intensive workshops and the like to, to do organizer trainings as well. And then we have something called community change grants. They come out in the fall and they're $1,500 grants and they're really meant to be catalyzing grants. We like to look for organizations that maybe don't have any, many other sources for dollars, but could use some dollars to try to do some local work to make their community more walkable. So those are kind of our major major programs. From, a, from an issue perspective, I mentioned already that we're now a co-host of the Freeway Fighters Network. We added a new advocacy manager who can help support that. We've added a new uh, program manager to help with our outreach and training. Um, we've also been supportive of places that look to decriminalize jaywalking uh, because it's so often used as a pretextual stop. It doesn't increase safety. And indeed, to me, you know, a real definition of a safe, safe street is one you could cross, not at a signal, right? Like, why, you know, why don't our streets work that way? Why are we criminalizing people for moving about their community, you know, in most cases, safely? Um, and again, it's used entirely protectionally to, to make it difficult for, you know, Black or brown people to walk around the community for fear of being stopped by the police. Like, that's... That's not a that's not an accessible place or a walkable place. If it's certainly not that. a transportation friendly type approach. No, right? it isn't. It isn't. And there, there are other things in that, and I, I appreciated that you you wrote about stopping pretextual stops for for vehicles for the same for similar reasons. 
we're very interested in trying to support um, local campaigns to direct funding towards walkability. So if you're working on stuff, let us know. We're trying to gear up how we can support you in that work. Um, and I think that going back to the point that was made earlier, it's where does all of that flexible money go to? Like, or even the grant money. I mean, you've seen this, Chuck, the, the person who you, I've seen this back when, like, the air pollution money that was used to improve an intersection because it would reduce idling, which was just BS, right? Like the ability of the local authorities to squeeze a project into a place that doesn't belong. So let's make sure that, that the money that's dedicated to walking, biking, safety, transit actually does that and isn't converted to other uses. And so any work you're doing in that regard, let us know. And, and we want to try to see what type of resources you need and, and how we could help you. And we've also, I think we're going to try to do more education of our own base about the land use issues. Like what gets built where is so critical to walkability and separating everything by uses and requiring setbacks and parking minimums and all these other things make, uh, make it impossible to build a walkable place. So we're going to get more deeper into that educational space as well on the kind of the, the campaigning side of the uh, equation. Yeah, no, Mike, it's very exciting. And I, I think that you know, when, when we think about building this culture of biking and walking, as long as the system is set up the way it is, I think that part of what you're suggesting is these local groups have to be in a position with the knowledge, the organization, uh, and the capacity to ask the right questions at the right time. I can see it making a big difference. The, the places when you back out of the places that have done the best work. What I always tell people is that they are the places who two years ago, three years ago, started getting organized. People will, will call us and say, we've got this horrible highway project going through. They're making a decision in, in two weeks or six weeks, help us stop it. And it's so frustrating to me to have to say to them, like, I, I could have helped you three years ago. And I would have advised you then to start meeting with people. And I would advise you now to use this as a catalyst to grow your local conversation. But if you really care about your place, you've got to get connected. And I feel like a, a big part of the work you're doing is creating this framework for people to be real effective at doing that. You know, one of the things I, I was taught, you know, was that organizing is the work of moving people from head to heart to hands, right? Like, oh, I see this is wrong. Right. So, and, but then your heart goes, oh man, I, I feel about this. That, that last step from heart to hands, what can I actually do about this? How can I make a difference? It's not only is it sometimes you don't have the knowledge to do it, but there are all sorts of obstacles to doing it, right? Like you're putting yourself out there in the world. You're going to open yourself up to criticism from somebody and, or maybe it feels presumptuous. So whether it's, you know, apathy or fear or insecurity about getting out there. And what I've always found in my work is that it really, you really require other people. It's other people and working and or, that's the work of organizing is to get to that place where you, where you, where you have the courage to get out there and deal with these things and, and kind of interject yourself more into the community conversation. You know, that's one of the things we hope to teach people about is not just help them, but help them then teach others as well. And, and so I think I, I really want us at America Walks, you know, obviously education is important. 
and training is important, but I also want us to have an, an organizing and a campaigning mentality that can help local organize. It's a little hard for me. I feel like I'm one step removed. Yeah, yeah. Like I love campaigns, man. Yeah. I love thinking about <laughs> who do we talk to next? What argument do we use? What tactics do we use to elevate this issue? Um, but even myself, who did something like, you know, run for mayor and deal with some really top level issues, even for myself, I find, you know, when it was time to kind of go out and say something provocative that somebody might swing back at me on, like I was hesitating. I needed other people too, even with that. So that's the thing that we, we, we're trying to figure out as well. And you've got so many passionate people who care about strong towns and some of them are stepping out in their communities. And you see it in other places too, like the freeway fighters around the country are, are doing that. And knowing that you're not alone and learning about tactics from other people and getting some backup, right? Seeing an article in a national outlet saying you're right can be feel really good. Yeah, it's very affirming. And everybody locally is telling you you're wrong. Yeah, so that's all part of building a movement. And that's what you call yourself. You this guys are a movement. Exactly. Yeah. My kids, I have, I have two daughters. They're now, it was going to freak you out a little bit. They're 17 and 15 now. <laughs> and so very uh, near adult children. They've told me that it's cool to put stickers on your water bottle. I don't know if you know this or not, but yes. So I do know this. My, my water bottle. My biggest sticker on my water bottle is my America Walks sticker that you gave me. Sweet. Sweet. So you've got a new logo. You've got new energy. You've got an expanding team. I just want to close this up by making sure that everybody knows where they can get a hold of you. There you go, right there. Yeah, it's it's a great, uh, it's very nice. And your website is great, uh, americawalks.org. I know you guys are active in all the social media space. Right. Is there a preferred way that people should connect with you or just is the website the best place, Mike? Sure, the website's great. You know, InfoWorks, Mike at americawalks.org works as well. I'm glad you called out the stickers. Uh, I have one on my laptop. I I've been saying this for, I think, at least a decade now. It's not a campaign, 15 years or so. It's not a campaign unless you have a sticker. Every campaign I've ever had, like one of the first things is, well, what's the sticker? Um. <laughs> well, you do it very, very well. I'm, I'm enthused. When, when I got the, uh, the press release, actually, that you were, you were going over to America Walks, I got kind of excited. You know how when you hear, okay, I'll, I'll give this as my analogy. You know, when you like admire someone and you like someone and then you hear like, oh, they put their hat in the ring over here or they're stepping yeah. up to do that. Yeah. And you get kind of like a little giddy, like, oh, this is going to be fun. Like, I can't wait to see what happens here. That's how I felt when I found you were going to America Walks. I'm like, okay, I like this organization. I like what they do. And now they've got like one of my top draft picks here. <laughs> uh, this is going to be fun. So it's been fun watching it. And I'm excited for what comes next. You're putting the pressure on. I mean, I, it's, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I have high expectations, Mike. You're, you deliver. <laughs> well, let's see if we can. Let's see if we can. But it's it's, um, you know, it, I just feel really uh, fortunate that I get to contribute in this way. So I'm just this is a gift to be able to do this work. And, you know, and it's like I said, I'm just looking for. You know, having done, like having argued with people in my own neighborhood about whether we could have a sidewalk or whether that was good for cars or not, man, if, 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 you're, if you're looking for someone to chat with about how to launch a campaign, man, I'm here for you. I love this work. Thank you, friend. Let's keep in touch. For everybody out there listening, americawalks.org. 
keep doing what you can to build a safe street, a productive street, a great street where you can walk and, and keep building strong towns. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.